Genesis chapter 2, if you'll find your place there, and we're going to look in various portions of Scripture, but just to set, set up the background for the message tonight, I want to look there, first of all, in Genesis 1, I'm sorry, Genesis chapter 1 and verse 27. So God created man in his own image. In the image of God created he him. Male and female created he them. And God blessed them and God said unto them, Be fruitful and multiply and replenish the earth and subdue it. Have dominion over the, the fish, uh, over the fish of the sea. The word there, have dominion in the Hebrew, literally means to tread down to rule, to lead, and it denotes leadership and authority. And man was to exert this. And God said in verse 29, Behold, I give you every herb-bearing seed which is upon the face of all the earth and every tree, in the which is the fruit of a tree yielding seed to you it shall be for meat. And then over in chapter 2, verse 15, And the Lord God took the man and put him into into the garden of Eden to dress it and to keep it. He was to, because he was to lead, the, the Bible tells us he put man there. Man, of course, is the, the head of his household. The authority there was given to Adam to dress and keep it. And then turn over to chapter 3. We want to read there in verse 16. We notice last Lord's Day, when we talked about the, the doctrine of submission and the picture of our Lord Jesus Christ in Philippians, the emptying of himself, that his uh, submission to the will of the Godhead was in no wise lowering himself to be less than what he was. He lost nothing by uh, coming to earth. But we saw here in the latter part of verse 16, he shall rule over you. He's talking to Eve. Your husband shall rule over you. And and to Adam he said, Because thou hast hearkened unto the voice of thy wife. Because Adam did not exert his God-ordained and God-expected order of leadership. He did not lead. He uh, submitted that leadership. It was a travesty there. The Bible's clear to, when we compare Scripture to Scripture that Adam was not deceived. Eve was. But Adam sinned open-eyed, willingly, uh, went into sin because of this you've eaten the fruit of the tree of which I commanded thee saying thou shalt not eat of it cursed is the ground for thy sake and sorrow thou shalt eat of it all the days of thy life thorns and thistles shall it bring forth to thee and thou shalt eat the herb of the field in the sweat of thy brow the sweat of thy face shalt thou eat bread till thou return into the ground for out of it wast thou taken for dust thou art, and to dust shalt thou return. Man will be was commanded to work and to, to subdue and to have dominion over his environment before the fall. The key thing here is it's after the fall, it's going to be very difficult to make a living. It's going to work is going to, to add to it a connotation that God did not intend for it to have before the fall that it would be not only God's design for us and there would be fulfillment from it, but there would be a burden in this matter of earning a living and it will not be easy to do. And Adam called his wife's name Eve and because she was the mother of all living, and Adam also, and his, Adam and also to his wife did the Lord God make coats of skins 
and clothe them. Our gracious Heavenly Father, this is the Word of God. We pray that you would open it to us and teach us from your sacred Word. Lord, we, we live in a day where the message that is about to be preached and the lessons taught are not well received. And our society frowns upon this and remarks are made of the archaicness of such uh, teaching. But Lord, your word is ever new. You have not rescinded the roles and the callings. As we've seen, your, the gifts and callings of God are without repentance. And so we pray that we would all live up to the, the roles and your, the will that you have for us. Teach us, Lord, and may your church model these things to a, a doubtful and sinful and frowning world. What a privilege it is to live out the gospel in the roles that you've called us to. In Jesus' precious name we ask. Amen. Newsflash. God created men to be men, which is different, not superior to, but obviously and intentionally different to be masculine for way over a generation. We have seen an overwhelming tidal wave of passivity among men. Sometime after the Second World War, when men returned home from the war and began to try to fulfill that elusive Hollywood and business conjured up dream called the American dream, husbands, fathers, and men began to, be, to absent themselves from their God-ordained role, not to be, not, for not women, not mothers, not metrosexuals, not pansexuals, or passive non-entities in the fabric of society, in the home, but to be masculine male men. Now, you may be saying, Pastor, you're saying a lot of redundant things, but the hour cries for it the clarity and the emphasis on the roles and the callings of God. It almost seems today that men are ambivalent toward their masculinity or apologetic for it. Society looks down on what it calls macho men as a negative thing. There was a day when men were men. They looked like men. They smelled like men. They reveled in their calling as men. They did manly jobs. They took the lead. They held the door for women. I can still see my father, who always wore a felt hat, tip his hat when he crossed the path of a woman. We're not talking about the Arnold Schwarzenegger, 1,000-pound, bench-pressing, Rambo, machine-gun-shooting type of macho-ness. That's not at all what we're talking about. We're not talking about dictator-like, command-spouting brutes who think everyone is to be subservient to them and that women are objects. What comes to mind when we read and study this are the patriarchs of the Old Testament, the prophets, the pattern of our Lord Jesus Christ, and the, the stalwart character and the ethics of the apostles. Words come to mind like honesty and dignity and strength and work and uh, responsibility. 
and ingenuity. Today, the norm is far often of young men who have never disentangled themselves from their mother's apron strings and their father's billfolds, who've never been talked straight to or had to undergo any hardships because the helicopter parents have bailed them out of every unpleasant thing and have not required of them to do hard things like work, like facing up to failure and to do the right thing. Their battles have been fought for them. The road has been made easy. They've been told how great they are, how talented they are, how special they are. And the result is a spinelessness, wishy-washiness. Is that a word? And dullness. But not real masculinity. True leadership and real men are the foundation, as we see in God's intent here in our verses. From the saturation of the rock music influence and the lifestyles came the byproduct of androgynous young men who look and act neither male nor female. In the 1990s, a new term was coined. The metrosexual, the urban-influenced, fashion-industry-dominated young male, far more concerned about what he was wearing where he was heading than where he was heading with his life and who was influencing him. The rock music movement, aided by Hollywood's emphasis on sex and pleasure and rebellion against the morals of time-honored roles, has produced countless young men aimlessly following the philosophy of the masses, twittering away his life with video games and other countless forms of inane entertainment. Often the role model is not father or grandfather or uncle or cousin or pastor or even coach, but hedonistic rap stars or sports figures who defy all rules or the unisex look of the fashion expert. The current acceptance that we see all around us in the mandated from our own Supreme Court of homosexual marriage, the blurred genders and transgenders and all kinds of genders that are being made up every day has become the norm because the music and the fashion industry and entertainment began to blur the lines years ago and tear down the distinctions of maleness and femaleness that God ordained and set up as his standard in the Garden of Eden, before the fall of man, male and female created he them. That is distinction, isn't it? That is two categories. That is difference. That speaks to us of roles. I want you to turn back to the New Testament, to the scripture reading that we read tonight in First Thessalonians chapter 2, and there we find a poignant portrait drawn from the pen of the Apostle Paul. And there he's describing to the Thessalonians his ministry among them. And I, I take from Paul's wordings what we want to express tonight about the, the masculine role of the man in our society and in the church and in the home. There Paul describes his ministry among them as a father among his children leading his family. 
And that is the goal. Every young man born into this world is a potential father. He is to be a leader. He is still to have dominion and to make his living and to do hard things. And the, and the, by the sweat of his brow, in spite of the thorns and the thistles, as a result of the fall and disobedience of his forefathers. This responsibility, this yoke is still upon males. Regardless of what society says or how popular or unpopular this calling is, it is still what God calls. And I want to remind every mother and father who are bringing up boys, you are bringing up the the next leaders of our church and our nation and the, the future fathers of families because they will father. The question is what kind of sons are they going to produce? Where are going to be the the, the, the foundations and the pillars of the family and the society and the church that we so desperately need? I want us to use this passage and glean from it some things to consider about the role model of being men. And ladies, don't tune out. Please don't tune out. If anything, say amen. Would you do that? And let, let, the, let the men know that this is... This is what you want because uh, society seems to act like, you know, the voices are so loud, but that doesn't mean that they are your voice. It doesn't mean that that is the the voice of of God, and it certainly doesn't mean it's the voice of the majority. May the Lord raise up a generation of young men to swim against the the man-made tide and to, to man up to the biblical standard. That God has given to us. Notice there in verse 8 of 1 Thessalonians chapter 2. So being affectionately desirous of you. How open Paul is. How, how affectionate. That, that Even that use of that word. Desirous of you. We were willing to have imparted unto you. Not the gospel of God only. But also our own souls. Because you were dear unto us. First of all. In true masculinity. You may think it's strange I start here. But. True masculinity shows an obvious love. There's an obvious love displayed, being affectionate. Masculine men like real fathers aren't afraid to express genuine love. In verse 7, he says, we were gentle among you. And, And amazingly, he gives us, in discussing masculinity here, the picture of a nursing mother. Paul uses that to describe himself in his ministry, could there be any more tender picture than that? True masculinity is not afraid to exhibit affection and gentleness. This will affect what we say, men, how we say it, our tone of voice. I remember the first time that I held uh, Leah in my arms. Uh, she came after a very long and arduous labor. Uh, it was uh, in the, the evening, we were going on into nighttime, and I remember uh, when the doctor, when she was born, he just handed her to me. I don't know, in my thinking, I thought he would hand her to, to Kathy first, but I've always lorded it over Kathy. I was the first to hold our firstborn. And so I, I remember, not that I knew what to do, I was, you know, like most first-time fathers, thinking, okay, am I doing it right? And I'm sure I wasn't. And still had the mask on. And I went to the window at Brookwood Hospital, and there symbol was half of our church and, and all of the Lamb clan from Tuscaloosa. I, mean, I, I guess they thought that, I don't know what people thought, because it was a crowd of people. 
And I still had the mask on, and people were saying in the glass, what, what is it? Is it a boy or a girl? Is it a boy or a girl? And I was kept saying, it's a girl, it's a girl. But I had the mask on, and nobody could see, hear what I was saying. There's, in those of you who held your firstborn child the first time, there's something that, that comes over you. This wave of, oh, my goodness, what am I going to do with this? And how am I going to, to be the father this child needs? We see there in verse 11, as you know how we exhorted and comforted and charged every one of you as a father doth his children. So we had this nursing mother picture combined with this father figure to show what true masculinity is. Note the contrast there. Back in verse 8, the word affectionately, in verse 8, Paul, out of all the Greek words available to him, and, and there are many more ways to describe things in Greek than there is in English, he chose this one word, and it's used nowhere else in the New Testament. That word, the Greek word for affectionately there, it means to feel oneself drawn to something or someone. Again, those who've held your, your child, you know that magnetism, that giant magnet of love that draws you to them. It has a strong and intense connotation. A fierce love of, of a strong father tempered with the soothing, comforting, nurturing love of a mother. A father holding his newborn and being drawn to it. We need that kind of masculinity today. Men leading and loving their homes and their businesses and the church. How we need men who show fond affection while not afraid to act and dress and lead like men. There's no contradiction here. It is not feminine to show love and affection and to use tender words it's, it's love that shows itself in little ways, in tangible deeds. Uh, sometimes in a, in a loving, firm stand, the, the, the stand of a father comes across there, standing firm against the tide and opinion of society that would draw away the hearts of his family, this fierce protection. I think of the prodigal son. What a picture that draws for us, demanding his own way, being disrespectful to his father. No doubt the, the heartbreak of that father in that whole scenario when the young man de- demands his own way, how, how uh, you know, brazen he was to ask for his inheritance before his father's death. Coming to the end of himself, he remembered his strong, loving father. And he cried the smell of pig slop all over him. He came to himself, he said, how many hired servants of my father's have bread enough to spare, and I perish with hunger. I will arise and go to my father. You know, if the father had not been this kind of loving, masculine, nursing father, the, 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 man would, the boy would not have said that, would he? I mean, he knew he could go home. He knew that his father, though he would not change his stand, he would not accept his sin, he would be ready and willing to receive him. And that's why the young man repented. I will say unto him, he's rehearsing it. Can't you see this guy, rags, 
going back home, going over and over again what he would say when he saw his father. He knew his father. He knew his father so well. He knew he would be there to greet him. He knew there would be mercy and grace. But he knew what he had to do. I will say unto him, Father, can you see him rehearsing his lines? I have sinned against heaven and before thee. This is no fake trying to pull the wool over his daddy's eyes. You know the story. And I'm no more more worthy to be called thy son. Make me as one of thy hired servants. And he arose. And he came to his father. But when he was a great, yet a great way off. His father saw him. There we see it again. That tender He had compassion and ran. You've heard, I'm sure, sermons on this portion of Scripture. No man, no Jewish man that day ever ran in public. He was undignified to do such a thing. But there's no such thing as dignity at a time like this. The dead son was alive and was coming home, being restored. He ran and kissed and and ran and fell on his neck and kissed him. What a picture of tender affection. One of the most vivid ones drawn for us by the words of the Holy Spirit in all the Bible. Compassion lived out in glorious display. Fathers, we learn from this text, men, you do not lessen your masculinity when you show love and compassion. Forgiveness. We we see that here audibly and visibly and tangibly. We see another characteristic of true biblical manhood here in verse 8. We were willing to have imparted unto you not the gospel of God only, but also our own souls because you were dear to us. Dear here is the Greek word agape, that word that means a self-sacrificing, giving love that was so lavishly displayed for us at Calvary. It's demonstrative. We see also a transparent a transparency of not being ashamed of showing one's love. I think one of the sad things of, of generations ago, not everything old was good and not all practices were good, that there was somewhat a reluctance of fathers to show affection. And uh, somehow that has gotten into the mindset of men and it gets carried on. But it's not the biblical paradigm it's not what the scripture shows us it's not how god the father is it's not how the prodigal son was it's certainly not the picture of the apostle paul that he draws of himself here to the thessalonians how tenderly and and affectionately our hearts were drawn to you so men let's throw away the hollywood version and let's be bible men how about that touching the tone of voice pet names comradeship Uh, shared times. It involves impartation. In other words, careful, thoughtful, purposeful giving of love and acts and and attitudes. I remember the first time, and forgive me for being so personal here, but the only parenting I know anything about is my own, okay? So there's a, I have a limited view of experience there, but the first time that I ever had Leah to myself, my wife was going with the ladies here, and some of you ladies were on that trip. They were going, y'all were going to a, a ladies' retreat in Tennessee. It was on like a Thursday afternoon. Kathy was very great with child. Lorraine was about to be born. 
And Leah was about the age of Mary Catherine. And so just before they boarded the big uh, bus, the big uh, Greyhound bus, Kathy took off a ring that uh, was very precious to her. It was a ruby ring. She'd saved her money all in high school and bought it for herself. And uh, so she, she said her hands were swelling, and she gave me that ring to keep for her. And she said, don't lose it. Put it, you know, take it home. If you, know, all, you know, Husbands, you know you've been instructed. And she asked me to put it on my little finger and wear it, which I would not do, this diamond cluster ring on my little finger, because Leah and I were about to go to, to, to Century Plaza. Boy, that's years and years ago, to the, the uh, McDonald's at Century Plaza. This was the first time I'd ever been, you know, out and just with her on a, for, a period, for a weekend. I'd always had Kathy to lean back on and say, here, do what needs to be done here. And I was, I'm sure I was obviously uh, nervous about the whole thing. And so uh, we, we were there, at, and I was trying to figure out how is it going to order and bring it to the table. Did I take her with me? You know, all those things you're trying to logistically, would somebody snatch her and, uh, and all that kind of thing. Uh, in the meantime, I had lost my wife's ring because I put it in the pocket and instead of putting it on my finger. So I was thinking about what I was going to have to face when Kathy got back home and not to lose the child also, you know. And uh, so this little lady looked at me. She could see I must have been just sweating bullets about the whole thing. And I actually I was more concerned about the ring I just lost. And she could see, she said, this, you're, you've never done this very much before, have you? I said, no. She said, you'll be okay. You'll be okay. We, we laugh about those things now, but uh, it, it's, it's a, a memory I'll always have. We are to impart the gospel to them. But may I suggest to you, men, that we're to live it first and foremost. We're to lovingly give them and teach them godly values, convictions, how to make good decisions, how to pick friends, how to treat people, how to to care for the elderly and adults, how to stand up for what's right, how to be unintimidated by the crowd's opinion, which is one of the the areas where many young people fail. They, they just cr- cr- crush under the, the peer influence. And, and uh, fathers, we need to help them in, in that area. It's not easy. I realize that. But it is us that, that, that they're going to look to. Giving the loving security of dependability. Not necessarily talented the, the richest daddy in the world and all that kind of thing, but a dependable dad. That prodigal son knew where his daddy would be. He didn't for one moment. He knew the time of the day where his daddy would be when he came home. His father was dependable. He didn't have to wake up and wonder where, what, you know, where would daddy be mentally, physically, spiritually. He knew what his father would be. One of the greatest gifts of security that we can give our families is being dependable, regular. That may sound boring in the flashy society that we have today, but oh, how it's needed. They know what we will do, how we will carry out our duties, and how that we will do the right thing about everything. We see in verse 9 another characteristic here. He mentions hard work. You remember, brethren, our labor and travail for laboring night and day. Paul was what we would call a bivocational apostle. Uh, he, he worked and made a living so that he would not be chargeable to the churches, not because 
that is the pattern. The Bible teaches quite the opposite. But because he, since he was not one of the original 12 apostles, that he was called, as he said, out of due season, he was constantly accused of being in it for the money. And so he lived very purposefully so that that would not be said of him. And he made tents and sold them. And that was, his, that was the way he, he made a living. He worked hard. And so in this picture here of masculinity and of, of, of what men should be like, we see it in the Genesis record of the, the, the job description that God was, gave to Adam, but we see it here lived out in the apostles' life. I was not chargeable to any of you. The, the work ethic, uh, so modeled before them and, and required and so necessary, uh, a part of character and a part of, of doing the right thing. We see in verse 10, a godly life. You were witnesses, and God also, how plain that Paul said, the Lord knows, and you know, you, you saw, you examined under the microscope our lives, how holily and justly, is Paul bragging here, this is not self-righteousness, this is not a Pharisaic philosophy. You know how we lived. Fathers, your children know how you live. They know what, you're really, what you really value. They know what's important. They know what you believe, not what you say you believe here at church. They know what you practice in the home, how you treat their mother, how you treat others. A godly life. I, I, I have out beside that, not a hypocrite. Genuine. The real thing. That's biblical masculinity. We see also verses 11 and 12. As you know how we exhorted and comforted and charged. What a... What a compound uh, job there. We exhorted, that's teaching, admonishing. We comforted and we charged. He goes back and forth. These are all in a day's work for a father and a, and a man. And there we see that this, this pattern of influence. Here's the way. Walk you in it. Chuck Swindoll writes in his book on Growing wise in, in family life. He wrote it several years ago, but he said this, How easy to get squeezed into a system that began with the Industrial Revolution. A mass migration brought people from quiet family-oriented farms to busy cities, big factories, and tight living quarters. Urban fathers left home early and returned late. By the mid-20th century, even the grandfathers, once the revered wise sages of homesteads, were shunted off to retirement villages or old folks' homes. Imperceptibly, dads have become shadows in dark rooms, leaving home before dawn and returning after bedtime. Instead of challenging fathers to give of themselves, the system encourages them to give the stuff their increased salaries can buy. Better education, membership at the club, material possessions, nicer homes, Extra cars, credit cards, on and on the list goes. But what about dad himself and that priceless apprenticeship learned in his presence and that healthy masculine influence and that integrity which rubs off the older onto the younger. It's gotten lost in the shuffle. The adversary has won a tragic victory which no church, no school, no occupation, no coach, 
no therapy group, no hobby can fully overcome. The absent father has emerged. And he closes by saying, your family doesn't expect profound perfection, command performances, or a superhuman plan. Just you, warts and all, your smile, your affirmation, your gentleness, your support, your leadership, your involvement, you. Men, your church need this. Our church will only be as strong as you are. How sadly, most churches are led by women. And most homes are led by women. And we see a perverseness in our society that is unprecedented and should not be there because when the order that God has established is reversed, do you know what? When something is not as God intended for it to be, do you know what that, the biblical definition of that is? Perversion. And we may think of that in a limited way, but when something is not used for its intended purpose or when it's turned upside down, we have chaos. The only key to reversing this is returning to the Scriptures. May the Lord give us grace. Our gracious Heavenly Father, this is your word, and we pray that you'd bless the clear teaching of it. Lord, revive our men and our young men, fathers and those who are not fathers, to live up to the the role of male, proudly, humbly, fulfilling the role that you've designed for us, how needed it is. Lord, you designed this. This is your pattern. May we live it out day by day. Bless us now. Revive us. Revive our families. Oh, Lord, we call before you, before the mercy seat tonight, for those outside of Christ, for the prodigals, for those who, Lord, who may be seeking you but have not found you. We pray that the message of the gospel would be ever clear and plain from this place and from us individually as we go out into our places of business and work tomorrow. Lord, would you bless and help us. Give us fruit for our labor, we pray. In Jesus' matchless name we ask it.